This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Professor Siegel, is off sailing in Europe this week. So we are not going to have Professor Siegel this week. But I am joined uh, by my colleague, Jeff Winnegar, uh, who's a head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree. Uh, and please note, Jeff and I are registered representatives for Side Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Church affiliates. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with Jeff a little bit so we could get some of our general market commentary we usually get from the professor. I'll share a few notes that he wrote in uh, talking about uh, the economic data that's coming in, the Fed, uh, and, and how really the markets are responding in anticipation of this big Fed meeting next week. Um, but Jeff, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. What's your your first this, – this week we had the, the ECB. We had the Bank of Japan. Uh, we were talking with a great guest all on Japan uh, for, the, for the show. But how have you been responding to what's been going on in the markets this week? Absolutely, Jeremy. And you nailed the timing on having to buy us today because we, we just had the slew – uh, of central bank meetings, and suddenly Japan is really, really intriguing um, from a, from an equity market perspective because the BOJ steadfast. What was that? Was that twenty four forty eight hours ago, Jeremy? Basically saying we don't care what the rest of you are saying. We don't care about Christine Lagarde with the fifty basis points uh, uh, of a hike over there at the ECB. We don't care about the criminology. Uh, on, on the Federal Reserve doing will, will it be 75 basis points or will it be 100 basis points this upcoming, what, Wednesday? Um, holding the line, giving a little bit of a hat tip um, to inflation. Maybe we'll, we'll hit that with Tobias today. I mean, we've got a full hour. Um, but basically saying, nope, nope, zero interest rate policy has not changed. Um, we need to and, and explicit comments, Jeremy, with respect to corporate profits and trying to maintain those, which was nice and I thought friendly to capital markets. So so very intriguing situation here um, in these markets in that we're very, very clearly down a path of tightening policy here in, in all of the global majors, certainly the Bank of Canada, Bank of England, uh, ECB and the Federal Reserve, but not Japan. So from my markets perspective, I'm super psyched that you timed this perfectly with the Japan expert here. Um, we'll see how it goes. Should be fun. Tobias, you got somebody, you can't get more uh, excited about Japan than Jeff on my team. Um, but we'll, let, let me let, let, let me come back to just the quick comments on, on the U.S. and sharing a note that the professor shared with me today. Um, he, we, he's been saying, you know, Siegel has been the most hawkish of hawks coming into the year. So if you go back to in December, we had Don Cohn, the former Fed vice chair on Behind the Markets. Uh, teasing out, Don will be back next week. We are bringing Don back to reflect on what's been happening with the Fed, what's going to happen with the Fed. And Siegel, you know, the time the, the, the Fed fund futures were saying, are we get three hikes? And Siegel was saying eight hikes. And people looked at him like he was on a different planet. Uh, and, yeah. you know, we just had three, we're going to have three back to back two meetings with three hikes in each of the meetings. Um, you know, so it's, it, it, the market has come very much in Siegel's camp. And now Siegel is pivoting very quickly to being one of the more dovish people on the street and saying, hey, be very careful here what you're doing because the economy is slowing dramatically. Uh, and, you know, the, the comment he sent in to me this today was the drop in the Home Builders Index was shocking. The, the sort of largest one-month drop in 37 years, except for the April 2020 pandemic. You've got jobless claims on the rise. You have manufacturing indexes much lower. Uh, and, and you want to be careful, Fed, from looking in the rearview mirror. And, and now things are actually starting to look better and don't over-tighten us into a monster collapse. Uh, Jeff, you've been talking about housing. Uh, how, how are you looking at the, at the, at the recession here? Yeah, and well, it, it's it's certainly um, fortunate for the fate of housing. You could say that if you look at the the stock markets internals, where the VIX the VIX was sitting there stubbornly at thirty, 
And nobody wants to walk out and buy the biggest purchase of the decade or of their lifetime when they're in a panicky mode. And when the VIX was sitting at 30, certainly there was a lot of panic in here. Now retracing back down to 23 on that metric. And if that's the gauge for how people are feeling, it seems that we've gotten a little bit more calm. The the view of things absolutely tanking has has withered away here in the last two or three weeks. But don't forget that the stock market did end up with a, a rough beginning to the summer. But certainly with respect to housing, Jeremy, look – the NAHB survey, which is the big home builder survey that we all look at, has been in free fall. Free fall, free fall, free fall, right along with consumer sentiment. And a lot of that has to do with people getting eaten alive there at the grocery store. Um, and look, as dictated by common sense, this move here north of six, but now retracing back into the mid 5% area on conforming mortgages totally caused a collapse here in mortgage applications. And as we've, we've put forth um, uh, for some time, you have this, uh, like in the Wild West, when the two guys walk away from each other and, and have a, a stare down, um, I guess maybe before they shoot them, uh, each other, um, you, you have a situation where, hey, I'm locked in at 3%. Why should I sell this place? And the buyer is basically saying, I'm locked at 3%. Why should I move out of this place? And so you wonder whether or not just activity will end up getting a little cold on housing. That's one of the big question marks in the third and fourth quarter here because a lot of the other shoes have dropped. Like I said, sentiment is already fully digested. People realize that the inflation is sticky uh, and it is problematic. We'll just have to see how housing goes and whether it ends up having a, a, an effect on the labor market. I mean, anecdotally, Jeremy, I'll tell you that when you're talking to a lot of people, they're asking questions about layoffs. We had four prints in a row at 3.6% unemployment in this country. Um, does that start to tick higher, get north of four, maybe into the fives? That's probably the, the big question for the market. Um, and we'll have to see how it goes. Yeah. Well, let's bring in our guest for the show. We'll come back to some of the market implications of all that's going on. But we're going to be talking with Tobias Harris uh, and, and being sort of Philly Wharton people. This is not Tobias Harris from the 76ers, although we'd also enjoy that as well. Uh, we are talking with Tobias Harris, the expert on Japan. He's author of a book we'll talk about, the iconoclast Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. Uh, he's a senior fellow for Asia at the Center of American Progress. Tobias, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having me. It's great being here. There's a lot of demand on your time, Tobias, now with being the expert on Japan and, and, and Shinzo's uh, assassination. Um, give what's, Tell us how you're reflecting and, and tell us how uh, you got into becoming uh, a, an expert on Japan and, and studying Shinzo Abe. Sure. Um, things have calmed a little bit now. I guess it's been two weeks um, since the assassination, but you know, I, I think um, you know, justifiably, I mean, I think it was just massively shocking both uh, domestically and, and internationally. I mean, and I, you know, I don't think anyone expected, um, you know, an assassination like this in Japan. I mean, particularly given um, not just the overall you know, low levels of violent crime in Japan, but just, you know, the Japanese politics. You just have not seen um, the kind of politics that results in political violence in a very long time. And so it just it, it really seemed to, um, you know, come as a bolt from the blue. And, um, you know, and, and the kind of international response is certainly a testament to um you know, during his second uh, prime ministership, uh, just the impact he had in raising Japan's profile, and, and of course with that, um, his own profile, and so you know, just a, a you know a tremendously um, significant, unexpected event. And I, I guess when you write the book about the guy in English, you end up in a lot of demand. So I a lot of writing, a lot of uh, a lot of conversations with a lot of people over the last couple of weeks. But uh, it's really it's really great to be here, um, you know, talking Japan. Well, well, thanks for taking the time with us. Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. No, I'll just just thank you for taking the time with us of all the of all the places. Um, if if you were to speculate speculate on on just the tragic assassination, um, do you have you come to a motivation for what what came to it? Is there if you were to pinpoint a a theory of all theories, what what, what do you think <laughs> caused caused this? So. You know, there's now, I think, a lot of, you know, in the first couple of days, there was, I think, a certain reluctance to, you know, just given the way the Japanese um, media works, a, a reluctance to 
uh, open the lid on, on what had come out. But I, I think we have a pretty clear picture of uh, the motivations um, of the assassin and why this happened. Um, you know, there's uh, the Unification Church, well, now the former Unification Church, uh, which has a pretty, pretty big presence in Japan, um, sort of a long history of people giving away significant, significant amounts of money to the church or being defrauded. Um, and there's also a long history of um, the Liberal Democratic Party having a relationship with the church. And it's not, you know, it's not like a conspiratorial thing. It's a um, the church uh, was staunchly anti-communist. And during the Cold War, that was useful. And it was able to organize, you know, it had um, adherents who could be used at election time to uh, get out the vote. And of course, you know, maybe money changing hands. And so maybe something sort of grubby about it. But this is just sort of a, a kind of something in the background of Japanese politics, sort of know it's there. Um, Abe, um, you know, has spoken at Unification Church events, most recently in September of last year, at least as far as we know. Um, so it wasn't like this was a secret. It wasn't like this was something no one knew about. And the assassin, it seems, his mother um, had given away uh, significant significant amounts of money to the church, particularly when he was younger. And it, uh, it seemed to have prevented him from being able to go to college and sent him on a a uh, very different life course maybe than he expected. And it seemed, you know, with that came a lot of anger. And, um, you know, to some extent, I mean, that's why there's there's something fluky kind of about this. I mean, this is not something organic to uh, kind of controversies within Japanese politics. This is just sort of um, something about his life circumstances and the fact that Abe was maybe just the most visible politician, you know, overall, you know, on the whole, and certainly the most visible with a relationship with the Unification Church and um, sort of wrong place at the wrong time to some extent, you know, with the wrong the wrong person um, with the opportunity. And um, and so it's, it's how, you know, I think in the early days there was some question of, you know, is this a sign of something bigger, you know, you know, is, you know, is, it, is you know, violence going to be more a part of Japanese politics? And, and I don't necessarily think we can say that. I mean, there's, there's a lot about this that's just very... Uh, unfortunate, very fluky, but not necessarily indicative of, of a new wave of violence. Yeah, and it seemed like in the first 24 hours they were almost trying to do like a John Hinckley with Reagan situation mm-hmm. on that one. Uh, the, the listener may recall that the, the guy had mental issues and he thought Jodie Foster would fall in love with him if he shot Ronald Reagan back in 81. It seemed like in the first 24 hours that's what they were going for. And then this came out. It did look like it was more politically motivated. Now, you said you used the word visible, which was very interesting with Shinzo Abe because this was the, correct me if I'm wrong, the longest serving PM in the post-war era. And it's that's one of the things that's interesting here in the United States to look at it, right, is that it's like Italy, where every, you know, every time you turn around, there's a new new leader. But in his last stint, in his second stint, how many years was it? It was seven or eight years, right? Almost eight, yeah. yeah. Almost eight. And so what is the legacy that this man leaves on on Japanese politics now that he's suddenly gone? Um, I mean, there's three different ways of answering that. Um, I mean, the first in sort of the immediate term, I mean, the fact is that um, even though he resigned almost two years ago, um, he remained uh, one of the most, if not the most, influential politician in Japanese politics still. You know, he was the head of the, the LDP's largest faction, um, the head of maybe more importantly, its kind of conservative bloc within the party, which is in some ways bigger than a faction. And, um, you know, was able to use, I think, the bully pulpit that he had developed, you know, from becoming this respected global statesman uh, to really, I think, set the, uh, pol- the policy agenda and to protect uh, kind of what he thought uh, the vision uh, of policy that, that um, the LDP should be pursuing. And, and over the last you know, nine months, we saw, you know, he was you know, constantly kind of remonstrating uh, Kishida to stay on task, you know, to not back, you know, to not change course, you know, to, re- you know, to follow uh, the blueprints that he had left. And, uh, you know, all signs pointed that he was going to continue to do that and was going to remain, um, you know, for years to come, really, maybe, you know, just this tremendously powerful, influential figure, even, you know, even though he was not uh, the prime minister. And, and so that was something I think um, all of us, Japan Watch, was sort of um, interested to, to, you know, to see how it 
plays out. And of course, now we're not we're not going to see that. So that leaves, I think, a big vacuum in the near term. You know, who's going to lead his faction? His faction's been kind of having this debate about uh, a leadership a succession uh, issue, you know, the succession question. Um, you know, is there kind of a conservative who's going to be able to kind of wear the mantle that he leaves behind and sort of organizing that block of the party? Or is there going to be infighting um, between potential successors? Um, you know, none of them have sort of the, the global presence, you know, the ability to kind of attract media attention um, and set up an agenda in the way that Abe, Abe does. So it kind of creates potentially more room for Kishida to do that. Um, so all of that's in the near term. Um, you know, over the longer term, I mean, I, I think you have to look at sort of not just his time as prime minister, but then also his you know, 30-year career in politics and what he wanted to achieve. And, and a number of the articles I've written the last couple of weeks you know, really stressed this, that you know, this was someone who entered politics with a big vision for what the Japanese state should look like. And, you know, he, he sees, you know, the restrictions that were placed on Japan at the end of World War II, uh, most notably the Constitution. And he thinks that, you know, these restraints protect, you know, prevent Japan from uh, defending itself and being a proper great power. And his goal from pretty much the moment he entered politics in the early 1990s was to change that. And if you look at the entire arc of his career, Japan looks very different now than it did in the early 1990s, and he is a big part of that. You, know, a, you have a proper national security establishment. You have a prime minister who is uh, much more clearly something of a commander-in-chief. Um, you have just a much more powerful prime minister's office, a pri- more powerful cabinet. Uh, the bureaucracy is much under much greater political control than in the past. Um, the LDP is much more disciplined and much more uni- uniformly uh, conservative than it had been in the past. And all of that, I think, you know, is were his efforts and, and the things that he had tried to achieve. I mean, we could look, you know, and I'm sure over the next you know, the remainder of the hour, we'll talk more about sort of his policy legacy and his successes and failures. I mean, and, you know, it's a mixed record. But if we look at his overall political project dating back to the start of his political career, I mean, he changed Japan in a number of different ways. We're talking with Tobias Harris, um, who is uh, an, wrote a book, The Iconoclast, Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. We've got Jeff Winninger, head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Tobias, it's, it's amazing. Uh, so a decade ago, um, when when he came in, um, I, I've got so many messages from my, from my colleagues and former colleagues. Japan has been a big part of Wisdom Tree's story, and, and Shinzo was a big part of our story. I mean, the three arrows policy, um, unlike the three arrows capital that blew up right now in crypto world, it, Shinzo had three arrows, and his three arrows, you could argue, are working in many ways. Um, I mean, one of his arrows, I mean, you could say controversial at the time, but the yen was having this unbelievable amount of strength uh, in, in going way, well below 100 is in the, after the earthquake and the, and the tsunami and the nuclear at Fukushima. They had this huge, massive surge in the yen, and... Um, you know, he came out lobbying for a weak yen, and, and, and now you're at like one of the weakest levels in 20, 30 mm-hmm. years. And now I, I sort of want to talk about that a little bit, but how do you think the three arrows worked, didn't work? What's, what's your sense on the three arrows and, 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 and your reflection on that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a big question. There's a lot of different pieces of it, obviously. Um, I mean, I want to start maybe even before getting to, to any of the particular arrows. In particular, I mean, I think the important thing to understand about Abenomics as a whole and, and, you know, beyond any particular policy, what I think he's left behind, um, there, there are two components to it. I think, first of all, um, you know, after you had the Koizumi years and this kind of moment where it looked like Japan was moving in a, I guess, you know, neoliberal direction, you know, Koizumi talking about small government and leaving to the market that which should be left to the market. And, you know, th- that was sort of the what looked like the wave of the future for a while, and the LDP looked like it was moving in that direction. Abe put an end to that. The LDP is not that party anymore. The LDP now is, you know, very much kind of back to the future, um, state-led, you know, the state-led search for a development model. You know, this is very much back to kind of the post-war, you know, post-war decades, you know, uh, METI was in the driver's seat, you know, much like it's its predecessor, Michi, was, you know, for much of the Cold War, um, you know, this idea of, you know, the prime minister's office, you know, working with Messi is going to try to find the solution to um, high value added growth um, that and 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 or uh, find a way to reverse the demographic challenges and, and change the long term outlook for Japan's labor force. And, you know, that was the mentality. And um, that does not look likely to change. And so, 
um, you know, I, I think we have to start from there. That really, you know, moving to this, um, you know, a, a more coherent um, kind of top-down, um, you know, the, the state is going to try to try to find a way to move economic resources to where they're most productive. Um, that was the philo- the driving philosophy, um, and it, and it is something that is here to stay. And 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 with that, I think um, was a um, you know, and again, I think this is something that's likely here to stay is a sort of um, experimentalism, this kind of search for, you know, that we're going to try lots of different things. We're going to see what works. We're not wedded to any particular means. You know, we'll, we'll try deregulation. We'll try tax incentives. We'll try subsidies. We'll try, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, to try to, to find, um, you know, ways to, to, to get higher value added growth. I mean, that, that you know, and, and we're, we're going to just throw things against the wall and, and hope Hope we ha- we get more uh, more successes than failures, and you know, the, and so that really is the story of the third arrow, right? They tried lots of different things, in lots of different sectors just across the board, um, but o- underlying that all was this kind of ex- uh, you know sort of a Rooseveltian uh, persistent experimentation. That really was, I think, the overall philosophy, and and it is now I think firmly entrenched in the LDP. Um, so yeah, I just want to put that out there before we start yep. talking about the specific, you know, the three arrows <laughs> in particular, because I think, I think it's just it, it's really important to understand what Abe um, was bringing, the sensibility that I think he was bringing to the Japanese government. Yeah, and, and it's it's one of those things where we use the words liberal or conservative. It it, mean, it has similarities, but it depends on whether you're standing in in, in London or D.C. or Tokyo. Sometimes it means different things. It, it, when you use the word conservative, mostly it tends to really mean on the issue of defense when it pertains to Japan. In the United States, maybe it has to do with more cultural issues like um, you know, abortion is topical in the United States right now. But, but when you say conservative in this context, you're really referring to the, the, the pacifism after the war and what, and what Japan should end up doing, right? Is that basically the tenor of it? I mean, and Abe was self-conscious about this, right? You know, you mm-hmm. like, he, this was this was you know he was you, know, you look at his writings, he's constantly trying to define these terms: what is the liberal, <laughs> what is conservative, what, and 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 well, and for you know, and, and I think in the Japanese context, the thing to understand about his kind of conservatism is it goes back to the Meiji Restoration, and and that like if you understand the history of modern Japan, the idea that you know, um, you know, Japan has this decaying shogunate, the European empires are encroaching in Asia, you know, it's a dangerous world, you know, they're knocking on the door. And you know, the, the Japanese state is clearly not up to the job. And so you have, you know, the old state is, is swept away. You have basically these revolutionaries come in and they build a modern state, you know, designed to compete in a world where you have these, you know, very aggressive, very capable European empires swarming around. And, um, that, and they were, of course, willing to try anything, right? You know, first they were, you know, they tried to do a more top-down developmental model, then they privatized things, and there was, you know, sort of a mixed model. I mean, they were, again, these, they were ultimate pragmatists in the name of national security. And so that kind of sensibility, you know, we've seen this kind of comes up in Japanese politics over and over again. This, you know, um, and, you know, this, like, we're not going to be kind of hung up on niceties about individual rights or things like that. You know, national security is paramount. The, you know, security of the Japanese people is paramount, and we're going to try a lot of different you know, we're going to kind of do whatever it takes to make that possible. And, and that kind of underlying uh, spirit um, is, I, I think, really was the driving um, force behind Abe and really the thing that he brought into the 21st century uh, more than anything else. And what kind of, and I think, you know, the difference between that short-lived stint as prime minister in 2006 and 2007 and, and when he came back was, I think, finally kind of understanding the economic piece of that, you know, that um, in 2006, he comes into, comes in, uh, to office uh, as prime minister for the first time. And I remember it was an interview he did, I think, shortly, like right on the eve of that. And he basically says, you know, I, I admit I don't really have a good grasp of economic policy. I haven't done much of it. I don't. And, and you know, clearly by 2012, um, that had changed. And I think he was conscious of that. He was conscious of the fact that not being able to speak to sort of the bread and butter issues that Japanese voters care most about uh, was a real weakness of his. And, uh, you know, that if he was going to survive and that if he was going to last in power, he had to be able to answer that. And so it kind of met a political need. But it also, I think, rounded out his philosophy, sort of recognizing that you could talk about national security all you want, but it, that if Japan didn't have a secure foundation for prosperity in the future, uh, it's all for naught. And so I, I think it, it kind of completed that um, kind of state-led 
vision, you know, this idea that, you know, that uh, Japan had to be, you know, to secure itself in, in a dangerous world, a more competitive world, needed to have the economic piece as well as being focused on national security. And so that, that's what you get, I think, when it comes back in 2012. The, the and you could definitely say there was like a means to the end where you need a strong economy to support the overall you know defense and military support services and maybe you could come to Japan as an ally for the U.S. and and everything. But but sticking on the on the economic point, I mean I think the most topical thing of all things in the markets now is currencies, and and I sort I want to come back to that just because I, I think it's central to every conversation happening. You have even in U.S. earnings season, you have strong dollar is hitting yeah. earnings. IBM took a $3.5 billion hit because of the strong dollar. It's like, who's on the other side? Well, it's Japan, because Japan's got the weakest currency in the developed market. Do, do, do you, is, you know, Abe came out and said it was like a, a goal, and he was saying it, saying it out loud, some of these things that other central bankers weren't saying out loud. Um, is is Do you have a sense of what the politics are saying today? So for a while, this the weekend viewed as very positive for business, uh, good for profit growth. Is the weak yen going to become a a drag for the politicians, cost of goods going up, inflation going up, um, or is it viewed as a we are now way more competitive, which is something Jeff and I talk about? Like, What, what do you think the weak yen politics are? I would certainly have heard much less this time around of the we're more competitive. I mean, um, you know, overwhelmingly and, you know, during the upper house campaign that just concluded, you know, everyone, every party was sort of lining up to take be, you know, to take licks at, at Kishida for, you know, the Kishida inflation and, you know, the mm-hmm. fact that you've seen kind of all these household staples are now more expensive and, and households are paying more for food and more for energy. Um, and, you know, of course, lower, lower inflation than we're seeing you know, here in the U S but, um, you know, there's still more than more than they're used to seeing. And so, um, you know, certainly I, th- I think the politics of the weekend maybe are different than they were a while ago. I mean, a part of that is just, you know, there's so much production, um, you know, by Japanese multinationals outside of Japan. I mean, it's just the reality, you know, they're producing, you know, whether to be closer to, to you know, Asian middle class consumers in China and elsewhere or just, you know, having you know these supply chains that, um, you know, are going to where the costs are lower. I mean, that just that's the reality. And and I don't think we're going to see um, too much reshoring because of this. I mean, you know, that, you know, there's the occasional kind of anecdotal story of some company bringing back, you know, some production of some product um, to Japan. But for the most part, that doesn't seem to be happening. And so it does seem to be, you know, we're certainly hearing much more about, about the downsides. Um, it, interestingly, though, I mean, politically, it looked like there was a time where it was weighing on, on Kishida's approval ratings. Um, and maybe he was going to have to do something about it. But he's, I, I think he's gambled that, you know, if they, they throw some subsidies at households, um, you know, and sort of kind of ease the pain a little bit, um, that they can kind of weather weather it. I mean, I know Kuroda's thing has been, you know, that you know, he still seems to be very much on team transitory when it comes to the inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, and still that under a lot, you know, the underlying kind of core, core inflation is still too low, you know, still below target. I mean, it's hard to see Kuroda... Uh, normalizing monetary policy before he leaves, you know, that, um, you know, for him to to have come, you know, come to the end of two terms as, as governor and at the end basically say, you know, I'm just going to pull the plug on this. It just seems unlikely. So I, I think they're going to certainly try to hold the line. Um, you know, and then the question is just what what can they do to help households um, in the near term, um, you know, just to, to ease some of the pain? People would love we for 2% about inflation. About Japanese What's that, Jeremy? I, you know, when we have nine percent inflation, they have two point two percent inflation. Like people would love to have the inflation that <laughs> Japan has at the moment. Um, so, in, in many ways, you know, the now the weekend hasn't really. You could say it, it surprised how quickly it moved, uh, and I think I we, we saw I, I sent Jeff a headline like Panasonic was going to raise prices twenty three percent or something like that this week. We'll see how much it, you get more stories like that. Um, Jeff, do you want to make a quick comment? We're going to have to take a quick uh, halftime break. Yeah, I mean, I was, where my mind was traveling, and as I think about the, the yen's move inside two years from um, 103 to the dollar to the other the other session was 138. I just pulled it up on the on the Quotron here, and it's 136. Um, that you suddenly have a situation where it from from foreign eyes, from American eyes, wages in Japan, even if they're unmoved, have moved materially in your U.S. dollar terms. And so you wonder whether or not there's a competitive arbitrage here, not only on wages, but other input costs, because it's fallen just that much. 
I mean, wages are going to be, that's the big question. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think that if you're going to see these kind of prices, you know, th- there's going to be a lot of pressure on corporate Japan to um, make good on, on some of the rhetoric about wage increases. And, you know, well, there's already, I think, a big push to have a big minimum wage increase this year. Um, you know, and, and that's really the test for Kishida. You know, he's saying, you know, I'm going to be the guy who's going to get more, you know, more egal- you know, the more egalitarian form of Abenomics and get money in people's pockets. And that the test is coming. You know, the next few months, if, if he can't get that, you know, bigger wage increases, um, you know, his his economic programs are going to be uh, dead on arrival, basically. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We're just talking about monetary policy, the yen. Uh, and, and Tobias, you mentioned Kuroda's second term. Uh, I believe it's coming up in April is when it comes. And sort of a number of the strategists I've talked to in Japan have said they don't see the Bank of Japan moving off their their policies until Kuroda changes. They've been worried about maybe they move their yield curve control where they've been targeting 25 basis points on the on the long bond maybe they don't move because the fed's doing all sorts of things so even if they did something it may not be enough to change the action and so if they wait till april when the fed is sort of done maybe they could have more impact but do you have any commentary on the politics of the corona successor or, or any commentary on all on all those changes there I, I mean i think it's it's you know really um imminently, you know, will, will become a major issue for uh, Prime Minister Kishida to manage. Um, you know, and I think the biggest challenge with it, um, I mean, yes, of course, there's the question of, you know, what happens to, um, you, know, the, you know, the future of Kuroda's policies under a new governor and, and you know, will, will they carry on and what sort of the relationship between the government and the Bank of Japan will be under a new governor. And all of that is important. But I think actually what, what the succession debate is getting wrapped up with is a uh, debate that we've seen in the LDP uh, about fiscal policy, and you know how much you know can can Japan continue to run up deficits? You know, does it need uh, or does it need to um, get serious about consolidation again over you know, over the medium term at least? Um, and this, of course, was a debate that before Abe's assassination, he was very active in. Um, had you know really had basically had uh, traded words with uh, the leadership of the finance ministry, uh, uh, the Vice, the administrative vice minister of finance had written an article, of course, during the general election campaign last year, um, calling politicians irresponsible and referring to Japan as a fiscal Titanic. And you know, Abe, uh, in the last kind of six months or so, really came out strongly against that, uh, taking the position that Japan has shown that, uh, you know, basically with the Bank of Japan buying uh, buying the bulk of the government's debt, that it can can get away with running deficits. And I think you know, among the right of the LDP. Um, they are, I think, convinced that Japan needs to be able to run deficits, not least for uh, an increase in defense spending. And so, uh, of course, that's wrapped up with the Bank of Japan. And if the Bank of Japan decides it's going to start buying uh, fewer Japanese government bonds, um, you know, the Japanese government might have to get a little more serious about uh, its plans for uh, reducing reduce, reducing its deficits. And so, um, there, in some ways, those those two issues are now completely uh, inextricably, inextricably linked. And, um, you know, without Abe there, it's not clear who's going to kind of be the leading voice in that debate. And if uh, there's going to be voices in favor of uh, deficits are fine um, going forward. I mean, we're still trying to get a, a, you know, a sense of the landscape after Abe. Uh, but there's no question that he's got, you know, he has colleagues and compatriots and lieutenants uh, you know, who believe that and, and will continue to push for that position and will therefore continue to push uh, for someone dovish at the helm of the BOJ uh, as we look ahead to the succession. I mean, what's amazing is you could say it, it is one of the most fascinating monetary and fiscal policy experience in the world. And you hear all this talk about modern monetary theory, MMT, and all the, you know, the the spending, and they've got the highest debt to GDP, and and yet the lowest interest rates, you know, in the world now. Uh, and you now you could say like, and the currency for a while didn't do anything, and it stayed extremely low. It's just like, what is the cost of? Is there really a problem? The government, the Bank of Japan, bought half the bonds. Well, you would expect it to translate to a weekend. We're finally actually seeing that translate to a weekend. Uh, and so the question is, how much more does it weaken if they continue? Um, but it, you have, you didn't certainly didn't have hyperinflation that a lot of people were worried about. No, I mean, and it's, I mean, they certainly um, seem to be, seem to be defying gravity for longer than than anyone says. I mean, and I think it tells you maybe that there are limits to what we. Uh, you know, that maybe the textbooks aren't exactly right, but we don't know for sure what exactly the right, you know, how long they can get away with this. And we just, I mean, I think, I think we don't know, 
But um, you know, the the other part of this really is that it, it's um, uh, you know part of Abe's legacy. I think is a change in the LDP. You know, he takes over. You know, when he comes back in 2012, and the LDP, you know, was a party that was basically celebrating having just convinced the Democratic Party-led government at that point um, to sign on to consumption tax, you know, consumption tax hike increases, despite you know having campaigned against them. Um, and you know, it was a party that was much more fiscally hawkish, you know, a party that was much more concerned about deficits, much more animated, you know, by the example of what, you know, what had just happened in Greece. Um, and the LDP is not that party anymore. I mean, I think you still have some fiscal hawks, but they are not nearly as powerful in terms of setting the direction uh, of policy um, within the party. I mean, it is a much more dovish party, a much a, to- a party that is much more tolerant of um, you know of deficits of of you know using you know using the fact that Japan pays you know the government pays exceptionally exceptionally low interest rates and that the Bank of Japan um, has kept those rates low. Um, so you know so it's again so how much longer. Um, can they get away with that? How much longer is the political consensus that has enabled them to do this uh, going to hold? Well, and you could see it inside the G7 in general, just this willingness to say, okay, um, you know, I guess maybe we need to meet our NATO um, expenditure requirements here in, let's say, Germany, because um, I think the Russia-Ukraine situation opened a lot of eyes, and Japan is certainly has a little bit of a different situation, what with China nearby. Um, so I don't know if we want to go directionally towards uh, the, the, the China issues and how that affects Japan. But what, one of the things that was on my mind here, as I'm just thinking out loud with the situation here, with the interaction between liquefied natural gas, and here was Fukushima, what, in 2011, and, and the Japanese aversion to nuclear after that disaster is seemingly suddenly turning on a dime. So I was hoping, Tobias, you could give us a little idea of where was the public – 10 years ago on nuclear power, or I guess it was 11 years ago. Where is it now? How has it changed in the last 90 days? What's going on on Japanese energy policy? Uh, that, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great place to turn because I think it's, I mean, it is, it is connected to an awful lot of uh, other issues. Um, now, Abe, of course, when he, when he comes back in 2012, um, you know, the hot issue is, you know, Japan had turned off its reactor fleet after, mm-hmm. you know, after the 311 disasters in 2011. Um, and, you know, of course, there was a lot of opposition at that point then to nuclear power at all. And mm-hmm. people calling for moving to you know, zero nuclear at all. Um, they had developed, created a new uh, regulator in the aftermath of the disaster and a new regulatory code to make sure that, you know, the, the reactors, you know, are you know, seismic, seismically safe, that the the, the actual uh, setup is safe, you know, the backup, you know, just, you know, a much stricter uh, process uh, of, of operating those reactors and ensuring that they're safe uh, to try to meet public concerns. And that process of reviewing each of the offline reactors uh, has been painstakingly slow. Um, and even when you get the reactor signing off on a, you know, uh, you know the regulator signing off on a reactor, you know, you still have to then take it to the local government and the prefectural government. I mean, it, it is a very complicated process. Um, yes. And we have seen of, I believe, I want to say they had something like 55 reactors back in 2011 or 2012. And in that, you know, in that time now, they've com- decommissioned a bunch of aging reactors. Um, and, you know, of the remaining, um, you know, we're, I think, fewer than 10 online. I mean, it's a very, very uh, small number compared to uh, what they even have now. And you know, for the most part, I think you know, underlying all of that. I mean, I think there was a more, there was a period I think earlier in his tenure where Abe was much more kind of gung ho about we have to get reactors on, you know, business, you know, and and the discussion was all about uh, energy security and it was all about cost, you know, and, and businesses are paying too much. Um, it was not about climate or anything like that. Um, I think what might finally finally be happening now. We saw some of this um, when Suga was prime minister, and you know, he made. Um, Net zero emissions by 2050, a Japanese government goal in law. Um, that you started to see more discussion of nuclear power then. You know that how are we possibly going to meet our emissions targets if we're not turning our reactors online, um, and if we're not developing kind of advanced next generation, um, you know, technology to to uh, to deploy. Um, and so you started getting a little head of steam. Kind of you know behind nuclear, but you know the, the numbers in polls really hadn't changed yet. Um, and then I think really, I think the Ukraine crisis really changed things, you know, that the energy outlook in the world just changed so dramatically. 
Um, and then you, so you add that, you have climate, you have um, the elect, you know, electricity shortages in Tokyo, you know, at various times in the last couple of months. And it does look like you're, you're finally seeing opinion polls that show a majority in favor of turning the reactors on, provided they meet the regulatory standards. And can I compete with China if I'm paying retail for my oil, if perhaps China is paying 20 or 30 points less than the spot crude oil price being sold by Vladimir Putin? Is that a theory that holds water? Is that an accurate, fair statement to make? Um, I'm not I don't know if I've seen it put in those terms, but I mean, clearly, I mean, like just like the cost that Japanese businesses are paying for energy. Yeah, that that is that has been a. You know, a consistent argument made, um, you know, by advocates for, for turning the reactors online and making sure that, you know, you have nuclear as part of Japan's energy mix. And, um, you know, it's it's not it's it's not a not compelling argument. It's just a question of what's going to what's going to get the public, you know, because it is such you know an issue where, um you know, there are sensitivities, you know, this is not something that you can just kind of roll the public on. I mean, you really need buy in. Um and so I'm not sure, you know, the business cost arguments aren't going to really, they're not going to, they're not going to bring the public around. Um, but, you know, electricity shortages, you know, and the fact that, you know, people are having to kind of turn off their appliances, you know, to, you know, to, to avoid blackouts, um, you know, that, that could resonate more, you know, the, the fact that, um, you know, there's a real impact, you know, if you don't have, um, you know, if, you, if you're not able to rely on those reactors, um, you know, if, you know, you're paying more for imported, you know, if households are just paying more for, uh, you know, to run their households, you know, because you're relying on imported fossil fuels, um, all of that, I, I think, maybe uh, may come home. You know, there might be a, an easier argument to make that, that hits people uh, in their pocketbooks in a way that you haven't had, I think, thus far in the nuclear energy discussion. You're listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking with Tobias Harris, uh, Senior Fellow for Asia at the Center for American Progress, Jeff Winninger, Head of Equity Strategy at Wisdom Tree. Um, Tobias, you know, the, we talked a little bit about um, some, some of Abe's transitioning towards security, defending themselves. Uh, one of the very hot topics with the Russia-Ukraine situation, uh, it's certainly a, a hot topic in the headlines today in the U.S., is Pelosi wanting to make a trip to Taiwan, Biden saying, you can't go to Taiwan, our military says it's not a good idea. What's the politics of Taiwan, China, in Japan? Uh, are, is, is Japan the key anchor to a you know, American Asian defense. How how do we think about what's going on over there? Um, well, I mean, to the second part of that question, I mean, I mean, just given um, you know, U.S. bases in Japan and the kind of assets you know U.S. is able to deploy um, from Japan, you know, you have a you know a carrier group based in Yokosuka, you have air bases, major air bases in Okinawa and uh, you know around Tokyo and and um, up north. Um, I, I mean, you know, just a you know major. Uh, staging area. I mean, this is, you know, yes. I mean, Japan is absolutely uh, a linchpin for you know, the U.S. ability to provide security and, and, and establish deterrence, um, you know, in the region. And also, of course, you know, meet our obligations to defend Japan. I mean, the, you know, that, you know, by treaty, we remain uh, obligated to do that. And so, um, you know, of course, that um, th- there's no question. I mean, what, you know, the bigger issue then is as the military balance has changed, um, you know, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, you know, with, with China's military getting stronger, um, you know, can the U.S., you, you know, I think there's a, a, an appreciation that, um, you know, the U.S. Um, can't just rely on Japan as, as a place for bases, but Japan needs to be able to, one, do more to defend itself, you know, freeing up U.S. assets to play other roles, um, but also that, you know, there, there could be critical support roles for Japan to play. I mean, you know, we're still in a situation where, um it's hard to envision Japan playing a frontline combat role. I mean, you know, for constitutional reasons and doctrinal reasons. I mean, it's it's not something where necessarily they're they're going to be uh, up to doing. But uh, in the event of a crisis, whether it's evacuating civilians, whether it's convoying and protecting U.S. you know U.S. warships, um, you know, or interdicting Chinese ships. I mean, all of that. Um, all, all of that is, I think, conceivable, and all of that, I think, is certainly the direction Japan is heading if it's not uh, exactly there yet. Um, you know, and I do think there's just a real concern of making sure um, that Japan is doing its 
part to kind of hold up the military balance, um, you know, particularly locally in the East China Sea, where, you know, there's there's a, a long running dispute over uh, over some small islands with China and the East China Sea. But then also seeing if, you know, in the event of a crisis with Taiwan, what sort of role Japan would, would play. I mean, and I think, you know, there's no there's no question that Japan would find itself involved in, in some capacity just by virtue of hosting U.S. bases. And so the question is, you know, can uh, Japan and the U.S. plan in a more um, forward-looking manner to have, you know, to, to have a role for Japan in the event of a crisis. And, and of course, we've seen reporting, you know, about such pos- you know, possible plans like that and uh, exercises. And, and, and that really is where things have moved. I mean, um, we can uh, talk separately about kind of how Japan has approached China and some of the challenges because, uh, you know, very much, um, you know, Abe, Abe tried a number of different things and, uh, you know, things are not any easier for Kishida now. You know, I'm thinking about now you went directionally towards China and Japan and and how they interact with each other. And now China in net population loss, just like Japan. Um, this was the this was the bear case on Japanese stocks for so many years was that it was, you know, kind of 10 or 15 years ahead of everybody else on the aging society. And I think no Japan conversation is is fully finished without talking about the demographic crisis. Um, in Japan, and perhaps in context of what's ha- happening elsewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think um, you know one one of the interesting things. You know, if we're going to kind of look retrospectively at Abe, you know, um, I mean, one of the the kind of interesting arcs of his second premiership was, you know, he comes in and he's you know he's got all these reflationists, and they're all saying, you know, it's not about demographics; it's just the deflation. If we change, you know, end deflation, change, you know, the regime of the Bank of Japan, that'll be the answer. Um, you know, Shirakawa, he was way too focused on demographics. Um, and what's interesting is that over the course of the, kind of the first few years, you kind of had an admission that maybe Shirakawa was more right than they thought, and that demographics actually were a bigger long-term constraint than the reflationists um, allowed for. And, you know, by 2015, um, you know, Abe sort of, you know, launches Abenomics 2.0, and it's all about demographics. And so oh, kind of over that first, you know, those first few years of sort of, uh, coming around to the fact that um, actually, no, you know, demographic problems uh, are real. Uh, they are a real constraint on kind of the long-term uh, growth outlook. Um, you know, you have to find a way to, to address this, um, you know, both in the near term, just, you know, seeing if there's ways of stabilizing, you know, the rate of decline in the labor force, um, and, and then seeing if there's a way over the long term of encouraging, you know, of, of natalist policies that would encourage family formation and, um and, you know, I, I think um, to the first part, the sort of near-term workforce the kind of profile, um, you know, I think there were some gains. I mean, you know, I think the, the kind of the entry of women, the, the entry and the, ma- the retention of women in the workforce, I think, uh, changed in, in some pretty dramatic ways. And I think that was, that was an important change. You know, I think there's been a number of ways of, of uh, finding finding ways to to help um, elderly Japanese stay in the workforce and, and finding ways of using their talent even after they reach formal retirement ages. Um, you know, you had sort of at the end of Abe's tenure more foreign workers in Japan than you'd ever had before, and that, and that was something new. So, I mean, not all. I mean, did, did that replace the the Japanese who were leaving the workforce every year? Not entirely. I mean, you still had, I think, overall decline, but certainly um, finding ways of using new workers. I, I mean, I, I do think that was part of the story of the Abe years. Um, but the longer-term demographic outlook doesn't really seem to have changed. You know, by the, by the end of his tenure, you know, you had uh, new record low n- numbers of, of babies being born. Um, it did not get better during the pandemic, uh, for sure. Um, and, and so, you know, that continues to be uh, the reality. I mean, and I think. Um, you know, maybe now we're seeing, uh, you know, this is this is the, the problem with not having been back to Japan in a few years, um, you know, that, you know, c- certainly stories about um, employers now finding new ways of using technology, you know, kind of um, employee list, uh, retail stores and things like that, you know, that that might be uh, more of a fixture um, and, you know, really finding um, productivity gains in, in the service sector in particular, where you haven't seen those productivity gains in the past. Um but it's still, I mean, the long-term 
trajectory is, still is what it is. And regionally, you know, the fact that you do have regions that are depopulating and that's going to place strains on, on Japanese finances and Japanese public institutions, you know, for years to come as they figure out, you know, how to provide services in these depopulating areas. Um, you know, the challenges are still there. I mean, the, his successors are still, obvious successors are still going to be dealing with these issues uh, for years to come. This has been one of the big topics, and and and, on, and people familiar with behind the markets know we've had a number of Japan strategists. Jesper Cole, one of my friends and and people I bet on trips, who talks a lot about the lack of of workers being positive for the young people who are getting jobs at higher wages. Uh, he talked a little bit of how he was practical. Abe was practical on immigration and letting people come in, but not talking about it. So he navigated some of those politics a little bit. Jeff, we got three minutes left. Um, let's talk a little bit about just the investment case here because. You know, sure. behind the markets, we're trying to tie it all together. You like Japan, uh, and, and I like you and I both like Japan from valuation story. What, give us your 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 thirty second thesis on why Japan now? Thirty seconds. Ah, you only have okay. a few minutes. All right. Look, here's the deal. As Tobias was was laying out, and as I think I could lay out, I mean, the, the BOJ is pretty steadfast on a zero interest rate policy for, for as far as the eye can see, and we can look at the notes here from the last 24, 48 hours on that central bank. And if you're looking at broad as something like an MSCI Japan at 13 times forward earnings, you take a reciprocal of that, and you have an earnings yield that is, you know, what, seven? seven, eight, you know, something like that, depending on where the PE is at any given time. That is a yawning gap over what you can find in JGBs. It's a materially different situation from the United States where interest rates have been rising and the so-called Tina trade, there is no alternative to low-yielding bonds, has withered away in the United States. So I think a relative valuation case here supports Japanese equities, a major market, third largest economy. It's 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 very very intriguing. The question is is if whether or not they will actually get competitive with this yen weakness. Tobias threw a little shade on that. Maybe they won't be competitive. Maybe we need yen one fifty to get it done. But it's intriguing and worthy of due diligence. I would suspect. And and you can say they're competitive today. Is do people act on it? Do they believe it'll stay? And will they relocate? Those are big questions. Not going to mm-hmm. uh, get it solved in the short run, but it'll be interesting how low and how how long it stays. Tobias, where can people find you? Last uh, closing thought. <laughs> um, uh, on the question, you know, I, I mean, I would I would you know feel. Um, relatively bullish Japan. And I think it's some of the themes that we're actually hearing from the Japanese government, you know, that, um, you know, whether you call it deglobalization or French shoring or whatever, whatever term you want to use. But I think, uh, you know, the Japanese government is making a bet that, you know, we're moving to a world where um, it's not just about price. It is all about, you know, security is all about reliability and that Japan has that. And ultimately, that's what, you know, businesses are are going to be looking for. And and Japan is going to work on providing that. Tobias Harris, Jeff Winninger, thank you. Chris Tooks on the board, uh, Patty Hall, producer. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.